Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. It's funny that the, the little announcer voice that says this meeting is being recorded doesn't end up on the recording. It seems like it should. I'd like to introduce her someday. <laughs> Uh, I think it's a security feature that they've added. I think so, too. I think so, too. You know, um, so you and I have been talking about how we ourselves are finding our way um, in this time of reopening and trying to find a path to walk and, and teaching on your life. And I've been thinking a lot um, lately about ordinary life serving as the spirit, the place for spiritual direction for people who come to the class. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish that I could persuade you to create a, uh, a, um, a graph or an image that we can put on the slides for Sunday. Um I've shown it before, but it's been a long, long time ago. Um, Imagine that there's a circle about the size of a half a dollar. Mm -hmm. And inside that circle is written the word awareness. And outside that circle is written the word unknown. Everything outside this little tiny circle is unknown. Now, if you were to clip that circle and make it a straight line it would be about an inch and a half long Uh as our awareness grows and that circle gets bigger there's more of that circle that's touching the unknown so the paradox is (laughs) that the more you know the more you are aware of what you don't know. Yes. I love that. Um, so if the question is, will I create a graphic for that? I'm yeah, well, sure I can. Yeah, one that shows it kind of expanding. Can yeah. you do that on the keynote? I bet I can figure it out. Yeah. Because what that, um, I, I had this awareness yesterday when I was reading Henri uh, Nowin's books. I've been reacquainting them thanks to you and their desire to uh, delve into the parable of the prodigal son at some point. Um, Spiritual spiritual direction is a process that directs our increasing capacity, the heart's increasing capacity to experience the sacred. So, the people who come to Ordinary Life, the people who listen to this podcast, the people who listen to the live stream can never stop. Yeah. And we can never stop teaching. Mm-hmm. We have to do this forever. We have to live forever. <laughs> so, so someday when I'm in my 90th year, I'll find someone half my age <laughs> to keep going. <laughs> but 
Yeah, I love that image because I think that's probably the greatest paradox of all is this, I don't really know what it means to acquire wisdom. You know, when we think of acquiring, it's so often is related to tangible objects. You know, mm-hmm. this, I acquired a set of China, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wisdom is one of the intangibles, uh, one of the ways that we grow without, nec- without having to have anything objective to show for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, the paradox of the more you know, the less you know. This is also a paradox. There's something in sort of cosmology called Fermi's paradox. And um, it, it's sort of twofold. That's the idea that like we can assume based on equations and movement and the ways that sort of that redshift happens in the cosmos that the universe is expanding at all times in all directions infinitely, right? But we can't actually see it. So that same paradox is inside of us, right? Where if we are pursuing this pathless path, this wayless way, We are expanding at all times in all directions, infinitely, even though we can't see it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking this morning, and I'm going to tell a really personal story. Um, a, a number of years ago, uh, I had this really, 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 really disturbing dream. And um, it just shook me to my core. And that morning I had scheduled a breakfast with a dear friend of mine, a woman who um, was devout Buddhist. She's been to Tibet. She learned to speak the Tibetan language. And so we met for breakfast and I could not shake the experience of of this dream that I had had. And she listened to me and she said, I think now is the time for you to get into analysis. So I got into Jungian analysis and, and then, of course, stayed long enough to get some training. And, and um, I, I'll be happy to share the dream because I think it is a, a, a way to give uh, illustration to what John Sanford said, that dreams are God's forgotten language. If you mm-hmm. have a dream, it's the, it's the sacred speaking to you. Right. So I went to see this analyst here in, in Houston, and we worked with that dream for, I'm going to say, maybe, maybe a month. Wow. And I got this incredible sense of relief, and I found out what I needed to do it was going to be um, both costly to me and a relief. And what, I, what the dream led me to do was to quit teaching mind and spirit. Mm. Mm. That's what the meaning of the dream was. I had two dreams in that in the process of doing that. But when I had finished working through that dream, my analyst said, oh, good. Now we can get to the real stuff. <laughs> What's underneath the underneath? Yeah. What is underneath the underneath is yeah. underneath the underneath. And yeah. I think we have this ongoing opportunity to experience this growth that you and I have been talking about. 
And so this Sunday, we're going to talk at least about the treasure hidden in the field, mm -hmm. which is one of two parables that are kind of parallel. I think you want to do the pearl too, right? Oh, yeah. I think that, I mean, they, they're so parallel and could be talked about together, but. but all right. We can, you know. we can do that. We can talk about them together. Yeah. So, um. Every time we think we found it, we are at great risk of losing it. Hmm. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about how reading about the early Christian movement prior to the time of Constantine, there have been these periods in the church's history, time and time and time again, where there have been these reformations, if you will, these breakthroughs, if you will, where People like St. Benedict went away and started monasteries. I mean, this is in the first, first couple of centuries of the, of the Jesus movement before the time of Constantine. Um, the, the, the organized religion has been so prone to corruption and losing its way that we have to come back again and again to find that treasure. Mm. Well, it's interesting. It's one of the things that sort of cropped up both as I was listening to you and also as I was reading, you should see me right now. There's a tiny little caveat. I have been having a whole lot of hip pain. I have a, a little torn muscle in my hip that just gets activated sometimes. And so the most comfortable way for me to read right now is laying on my belly with like a pillow under me. So I have in front of me about 10 books spread out. And I wow. just kind of keep pulling one, at, you know, I, I, I've, I have one um, called a small illustrated guide to the universe. <laughs> I have now in, I have Padre Gotuma, but, but one of the things I was thinking about is this, this idea of something being hidden so that the, the treasure buried in the field and the, the pearl of great price imply a kind of hidden nature, right? A hiddenness. But I don't know that I conceive, and I'd like, like to hear what you think about this too. I don't think of sacred mystery God as a trickster. You know, it, it's not a trick to try and like get us to chase something that we'll never find. Mm -hmm. I think that the, 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 the finding is in our seeing that the reason it's hidden is in our ability to see and our ability to kind of like remove the scales from our eyes as we talked about with Saul, Paul, right? Well, what do you think? I mean, it seems like a large cruel trick to make God a kind of jokester. Ha ha ha, I've hidden this pearl, <laughs> but you'll never find it, you know? Um, but there is a game element to it. If we can have a sense of humor, a sense of play, even sometimes a sense of frustration with that. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, what do you think the treasure is? Mm. Well, I think it's what is within. I think it is that, so I keep going back also to that Hindu Brahmin story of where shall we hide the divine? And in the sky, no, the humans will conquer the skies and find it. In the 
seas, no, the humans will conquer the, the seas and find it. In the land, no, the humans will conquer the land and find it. What about deep within? They will never think to look there. So I love that story. It's Hinduism is one of the oldest religions that we have on record, right? And that relates to this treasure buried in a field, the pearl of great price, hugely to me. So I love that thread, the continuity of a thread that says, look inside. That's where I think it is. So as you know, I'm fond of Zen teaching stories and so is Henri Nguyen. Mm -hmm. He used them a lot. And yeah. so Henri Nguyen tells the story about this young man, earnest seeker after truth. And he had tried many different paths, many different ways and, and never had found any satisfaction. And he heard about this Zen master um, who lived far away in a distant land. That's, in these stories, that sort of detail is very important. Because mm. you have to go away from where you are the familiar into something that is foreign to you mm -hmm. to find the teacher. It also says that, that the process of, of finding the treasure or the pearl, but I'm going to stick with the treasure right now, requires a solitary journey that on, on a solitary journey where you have to have a teacher. Mm -hmm. That just that say that paradox again. You can only make the journey by yourself, but you need a guide, right? right? Or many guides. So, huh? <laughs> Some, or many guides sometimes. Or many guides. Yeah. Many guides. Yeah. So the the he goes to the Zen master and he gets on his knees in front of him and he begs the Zen master, "Would you please take me as a student? I've tried this and this and this and this." And the Zen master agrees he said not only will i take you as a student i will make you my personal secretary so for three years this sin student followed the master everywhere but as time passed he got increasingly frustrated because the zen master never addressed him directly hmm. and finally after three years is that mysterious three number again hmm. Uh, threes always represent transition in um, you know in the mystical language. It's my favorite number. Is it? It is. I'll tell you why in a second. Keep going. Okay, so um, he he finally grows his his desperation becomes so severe that he can't stand it any longer, and he blurts out to the Zen master, "I've been with you three years. I've given you everything. I give you my devotion, my loyalty, and so forth, and you haven't taught me anything." And the Zen master said, I've been teaching you every step of the way. When you bring me coffee, I say thank you. Bring me tea, I say thank you. When you clean my desk, I say thank you. I ask you to sit by my side while I teach. And But the, the student didn't get it. Mm. And finally, the Zen master screams at him, when you see directly. And of course, he was enlightened. Yeah, because what he had been looking for and wanting was right under his nose all along, and he'd been thinking it was something else, so he missed it. Yeah, yeah. I it's mean, a great I think story. that it's a wonderful story because it points to the process, and it's a little bit sort of ble bleeding what I spoke about Sunday into 
this week a little bit is these moments, we have peak experiences. I think I bet if you and I could probably name several memorable peak experiences in which it felt like awareness just rained down on us. Mm -hmm. But even that moment was a result of a process, right? Mm -hmm. Even the moment where we felt, where we feel that Kairos time, if you will, the time mm -hmm. out of time where we can point to it and say, God, I remember this meditation or this dream that I had. But that even getting to that moment was a process. And I really um, appreciated, I think in Cyprian Smith's book, The Way of Paradox, his talking about this is more of an attitude than it is an experience. Mm -hmm. But it's all in the experience, meaning mm -hmm. every day bringing the coffee, right? Taking the notes, sitting next to your beloved teacher, you know, mm -hmm. this is so true. Um, I have always been attracted to process. I, it may be why I insist on talking about grief <laughs> and, and the darkness sometimes because I believe that that's also a process. I don't uh -huh. think it has necessarily an end and beginning, but as an artist, I was trained uh -huh. as a printmaker, which is one of the most process oriented art forms I know of. It just, it, it involves just etching and drawing and etching and drawing on metal plates or etching and drawing onto a stone. Lithography was kind of the original Xerox machine. That's how early productions of books were produced, page by page, hand printed. Um, you know, so everything in printmaking is a process and you don't really know what's, the stone has its own life. The metal plate has its own life. The plate changes over time. I'm, I'm just very drawn to process. And I think that must be telling about something. I'm not sure why, but I, I do think that we live in a culture that process is largely overlooked. We want to order something at the fast food restaurant that says, you know, give me enlightenment. I want to know the secret. Um, does mm -hmm. it come with a salted caramel latte on the side? Because, <laughs> you know, um, so somehow one of the things I hope we can do is allow for people to give themselves permission to slow down and be in the process to just. So one of the, one of the retreats I offer and last gave this at the Jung Center, it might be on their website in an archive. It's a long presentation that I did called Hidden in Plain Sight, mm -hmm. Discovering Spirituality in Everyday Life. And people who are listening to this podcast have no idea about what I what I am about to say, but I've moved back into my office, which is in the <laughs> cathedral building at St. Paul's. And I love this space. Thank you, Holly Hudley, for decorating it for me, uh, saying where all the pictures go. And my office is just full of things that are hidden messages. Mm -hmm. And one of them is a Magritte painting. I love Magritte. And I, I, the, the original of this painting is in the Dimonil collection here in Houston. Yep. Dominique Dimonil was a huge patron of uh, Magritte. And it's called The Empire of Light. And I just love it because it's a bright, sunny daylight scene at the top of the painting. And it's a night rainy scene at the bottom. And when people come into the office and they look around, they look at that painting and they say, Where'd you take that photograph? Because it looks like a photograph. And then I explain what it is and why it's there. Um, 
I, when you said that aha, have those aha experiences, I thought of the many times that I went to see Magritte's work at the Dominil Collection and I stood in front of that painting and the, the one that says, this is not a pipe. Yeah. And I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and I said, well, <laughs> hell, it? if it's not a pipe, what is it? It's a painting of a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. And I did, that never occurred to me yeah. time after time after time of looking at it. But yeah. when I saw it, it was like, wow. Yeah. You know? Do not mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon right. itself. Yeah. Right. So I I love Magritte also. Um, I think the Damonels, if I'm not mistaken, have the largest private collection of, of Magritte's on hand like that we know of. And I, I may have told you this story, but when I was running a printmaking studio, we had some issues with some paper conservatory type of thing. So we went to see the real professional, the conservators at the, at the Manil Museum. And there's a back room where they clean up, restore, and tend to paintings that may have been damaged, et cetera. And you walk in this room, and just leaning up on walls, propped up on easels, some with gunshot uh, destruction in them, are just Magritte's. They're just stacked in this room. <laughs> and, you know, so, so some of them were, were um, saved after World War II. And they do have bullet holes in them. And, you know, so the, the conservators sit and they stitch this canvas back together and then they try to make that little patch blend in with the rest of the painting. It's just incredible. I, I have nothing more to say about that other than that experience of walking into a room full of Magritte's just looking sort of lazy against the wall was, whoa. <laughs> uh -huh. But yeah, I did, it, in that image, I can I know the poster that you're talking about and where it is in your office, but that's a lovely paradox. Uh, mm -hmm. And it also points to this really remarkable thing about time. You know, we've given form to our days and nights by constructing time. And mm -hmm. that painting always makes me think that time is so fluid. You know, there is no day, night, rain, sun. It, it, it's, it's always in flux. It's always in transition. It's always moving. And somehow in that painting, Magritte kind of captures all the layers of, of that. This is, I think, where artists and poets and um, writers really excel at capturing metaphor and paradox. You know, that these ways that poetry, for example, can create a layer of an image that a regular definition cannot, or the way that Magritte can capture something so absurd, like saying, this is not a pipe, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I think I'm so grateful for the artists and the creatives in this world for helping us to see outside the box so often. You know, Robert Johnson, uh in one of the talks that he gave to us said that everybody gets wounded in the process of living and growing up. There are a lot of wounds. Um, societies that have lived out of wisdom traditions 
has sometimes deliberately wounded their young men, particularly young men, um, as part of initiation rite to initiate them into manhood. They, they wound, they live with the wound. And um, Robert said that when in the process of growing, we have a choice about whether we're going to live with the wound that we've received neurotically or heroically. And he said, if you look at the people who choose to live heroically, you will find that they become very frequently great artists, great teachers, great mystics, because they know what it is to suffer and to lose and to die and to be born again. And I think there's a mm-hmm. great deal of truth in that. And that's one of the services that art art renders us. And of course, I, for me, I would include in that it's one of the services that great architecture renders. Yeah, I agree. There's. Um, I was trying to scan through this book, The Way of Paradox, about his um, bit on suffering. Ah, and I just found it. So he, he writes, there's no suggestion that suffering has any kind of intrinsic value or that it is in any way an end in itself. It is simply a fact of life, something which we must inevitably encounter on the way to God. So as a rule, we make suffering worse by failing to recognize it, fail, refusing to accept it by constantly running away from it because it seems to us meaningless, cruel, and unjust. We often ask, why should I have to go through this ghastly business? And I think that this, that again speaks to the process, right? When we're always impatient for the process to be over, we're not in the learning. And that goes back to the Zen story that you just shared, that the, the young apprentice wanting to learn the secrets of Zen and all along the way he'd been shown, but he was impatient with the process. He wanted the process to get somewhere. Mm. Um, there's, there's a, I don't know who said it, but there's a, there's a, it may have been Whitehead. I can't remember, but there's essentially this saying that's a, don't mistake the map for the terrain itself, um, which applies here that the map is a, is a, and even artwork is a, is symbolic of the process that creatives go through. And the map is symbolic of the land, but it's not the land itself. Um, that's the felt experience and that felt experience, which is wholly individual, but completely universal (laughs) at the same time Mm -hmm. is what I think is so hard to put words to. So You know that you've heard me say a number of times that, and uh, this is not original with me. I got it when I was a seminarian. Uh, Jesus taught in parables and his followers taught in parables about Jesus. And one of the things that has become clearer and clearer to me as I have gone along this path of study and reading and all that is how, how, how true that is, how much of the narratives about Jesus are parables that they're not, they weren't ever, ever intended to be taken as literal stories. And reading John Shelby Spong's book on the fourth gospel really makes that mm-hmm. case. I just read the chapter this yeah. morning on Lazarus. I don't know if you... I haven't okay. gotten there yet. It, it, I'm it, only it, on like chapter five, it, I think. And I know that's stunning for people to hear, but 
Um, John is telling a, a myth which is truer than true. And uh, think about how the people who created the narratives that we have, and not all the narratives that we have are in the authorized Christian collection, but think about how often mm -hmm. they depict the followers of Jesus not getting it. That even Jesus says to them again and again, have I been with you so long and yet you still do not understand? Because they knew yeah. that it was a hard truth to, to get. Right. You've heard that phrase, throwing spaghetti against the wall. Um. <laughs> You know, like you, you, how you test spaghetti to see if it's done. <laughs> I have heard that, but I've never tried it. Yeah. Oh, I had a boyfriend in college who literally had a whole wall in the kitchen that he lived in with spaghetti on it. And it was his favorite thing to do was to test the spaghetti and throw it against the wall. So <laughs> <laughs> I have a very real image of what that looks like. But I love the phrase, let's just throw spaghetti against the wall, right? We're just going to throw something against the wall until it sticks. And I sometimes think that that's what Jesus was doing with all these stories and parables. Look, I'm just going to keep firing these stories off at you. And I'm going to keep telling you different ways to think about the kingdom, right? The kingdom within until something sticks. You know, he didn't need everyone to get the same understanding of the same story, but he kept telling the same story in different ways. And he never directly and answered so. their question when they said, what is the kingdom like? He said, uh, what is the kingdom right. of God? He said, well, it's like this. Consider. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They wondered. Yeah. So back to the question, yeah. what is the treasure? Will you say it within? What is it within that is the treasure? Hmm. Well, we have a lot of words for it. Um, the true self is That's what Jung called it. Yeah. Um, in other words, getting far enough away from our ego responses of things to, as you've said so many times, we cannot ever fully devolve from needing our ego. We have to know when to stop at stoplights. We have to know how to order food at a restaurant. We have to know how to pay our bills. Those are ego functionings. You know, they, they help keep us mm -hmm. sort of in the world in some way. But, you know, this goes again back to, I think, to what Cyprian Smith was writing about in the way of paradox was, do we adopt an attitude outside of our spiritual practice that allows for wholeness, that allows for that bright light within to shine forth no matter what we're doing you know um and every time that i get you know frustrated or short-tempered with my children i'm reminded nope <laughs> you're not mm -hmm. you know you're not there yet but i suppose in those same moments you offer yourself grace and that's the true self-operating too you offer your kids grace, whatever you need to sort of get back to the ground of being. I, I have a friend, Peter Sills, who lives in England and mm -hmm. France. And Peter mm -hmm. has been a pilgrimage director. <clears throat> we first met Peter when we went with the choir at St. Paul's to Ely Cathedral in Ely, England, where he was a canon there. And Peter, just such a wonderful 
human being and an embodiment mm. of the spirituality that he teaches. He's, he's just a great guy. And um, he's an expert on the rule of St. Benedict. And um, the rule of St. Benedict, by the way, is the, the basis for the book that I recommend again and again to people for spiritual practice. And, and that is the book, Always We Begin Again. And Peter says that if you read the, the discipline of, of uh, Benedict, the book of St. Benedict, that one of the things that he, he stresses four things over and over. One, he stresses the importance of silence. You have to have mm -hmm. time in your life where you just listen. He stresses the importance of obedience to something, to a, a path. And um, Hinduism, Zen Buddhism, Buddhism, uh, we've talked about the Eightfold Path before. There, There is a way to walk, although if you think it's the way, you've just lost it. <laughs> There's another paradox in that. And yeah. he says that it's also uh, important to know um, about stability, which is being not thrown by... What happened, not reacting to what goes on in the world. This is a big one for me, particularly in the current political social moment. Um, I look at I look at what's not happening in um, how we're taking care of the planet. I look at the voter right repression that's going on. I look at the gun violence that just is staggering the amount of gun deaths that have occurred just since reopening, it's over the 4th of July yeah. weekend, it was just horrific. And I think, you know, it's hard, it's hard to maintain this sense of stability in this because I can be really quite reactive. Yeah, and, and I don't, you know, there's, we've got to find that space between reactivity and responsiveness. Um, I do think it's important to respond to, to what is, to respond to the unrest and respond to the violence and respond to all that we've witnessed directly and indirectly over the last, as things have unfolded over the last few years. And that is the, the trick, mm -hmm. right? That I think a spiritual practice does demand a response from us, but not one that is reactive and finding that that pause, the space, the breath, I guess, in between the two. You know, I hope um, that we can work this into our talk on Sunday. I have made a note mm -hmm. about this, but I hope to remember it. You sent me the response that the, I'm blocking on her name. Nicole yeah, Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones gave yeah. about not accepting tenure at North Carolina. That was brilliant. She's brilliant. What I was going to say is that to me, she is an example of somebody who found the treasure and held on to it. Great point. You know, she does. She does. She holds her ground, and she has an absolutely terrific and mindful response to it. I've realized this is not my work to heal people who don't know how to deal with truth. You know, but it is mine to keep going in the truth and mm -hmm. to keep going in what I believe in. And yeah. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. brilliant what she said. Uh, again, yeah. let's remember yeah. to use that.
on Sunday. Well, you know, Howard University will gain two excellent minds. Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates have just signed on to um, be professors of journalism there. And that's a university that is like, come on, <laughs> bring your wares, you know, bring what you've got. <laughs> bring your pearl of great price. Yeah. Because yeah. our students needed it. It just makes me sad that so much artistry, ingenuity, and... Um, real brilliance among non-white folks has been lost to mainstream, if you will, because of divisiveness, reactionary politics and racism. Mm -hmm. but. Mm. Well, I am going to have to go. Yeah, it's about that time. <laughs> it's about that time. I yeah. need to go try to find my glasses. You do. You're not going to be able to proceed with your day. They are not do, outside so. of this very small office. So somewhere I will find them. Look in the cracks in the sofa. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> I will see you Sunday. All right. See you soon. Bye. Bye.